Good morning. There's not a place I'd rather be on this side of eternity than right here with all of you right now. Amen? Amen. Now, I fessed up a little bit at early service, but this rainy weather did make it a little bit difficult to get out of bed. But I am enjoying the weather. But I tell you what, to get to start the week out in a place like this with one another, there's there's just not a greater blessing than that. I think we take for granted too often um, the blessings that we have in this community, the blessings that we have in being able to open God's word the way that we can freely and and to hear from it and to learn from it and to learn from one another. Um, There's people in the world that don't get to do this the way that we do, and and we should be grateful for it. Um, In uh, June of 2020, news broke that buried treasure had been found in the Rocky Mountains. I don't know, some of y'all may have remember this. It was uh, more than a decade prior to that that a man by the name of Forrest Finn crafted this kind of elegant treasure box and filled it with over a million dollars worth of treasure and hid it in the Rocky Mountains. He periodically gave clues online about where you could find this treasure. He wrote an autobiography called The Thrill of the Chase. And in The Thrill of the Chase, there was a poem, a 24-line poem, and it gave some clues to the whereabouts of this treasure. And there were a lot of people that went pretty crazy trying to find it. Um, there were people who quit their jobs and dedicated themselves to, um, to exploring the wilderness um, and, and pouring through his writings trying to discover clues. Of course, there were a lot of people that claimed that it was a hoax, but that didn't keep others from depleting their entire life savings in search for this treasure. I found an article online that, that gave the history of the five people who actually died in search of this treasure. Um, it caused a lot of issues. I mean, there were, um, the, the government agencies were asking <laughs> this Forrest Finn to either tell everyone it was a hoax or tell where the treasure was because uh, people were getting in trouble. They were trespassing. They were um, defacing public property and digging holes all over the place looking for this treasure. Um, and it was finally found three years ago. I think it was sometime last year that they actually auctioned off the contents of the box and it was indeed um, like 1.3, 1.4 million, I think is what the news article said. Um, quite a find. Now, without judging these uh, treasure hunters too harshly, I, I want to think a little bit about what they were doing. Do you think the people who depleted their life savings, maybe those who even died looking for this treasure that was possibly buried in the Rocky Mountains, because they didn't really even know if it was there at the time, Do you think they were living with an eternal perspective on life? Were they living with God's vision for time, guiding their days in the here and now, or were they just living for what was directly in front of them? Here's another question. Were these treasure hunters really any different from the countless others among us who while away our hours and years of life in pursuit of a career? or who sacrifice relationships with our spouses and children for the sake of a paycheck, I wonder how many of us are living for an eternal, with an eternal perspective. You know, we've introduced each lesson the last couple of weeks about our drive for eternal life, um, the, the kind of the, the, the crown jewel of all that we are looking for. And I believe within us we all very much desi- desire that, but, but the truth is this, 
Every day we wake up and make choices that often are focused on very different things. We often struggle to keep an eternal perspective, and instead we live our day-to-day lives pursuing what is right in front of us, the here and now. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10 yet again, verses 25 through 28. I'd like for you to turn your Bibles there. Um, If you'll recall, we're um, entering into this interaction between Jesus and a a lawyer who's going to put him to the test and ask this age-old question, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus turns the question back on him. Um, and, and, And we see that the lawyer knew the answer. He knew the words to give to Jesus, but there was something that he was missing. This important and simple truth that was right there in front of him. And I think often we find ourselves in that same position. It's, it's right there. We even know the answer, but in our day-to-day lives, we struggle to do what we're supposed to do. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. So we started uh, two weeks ago by looking at the loving God with all of our heart. The heart is a pretty complex, a multifaceted idea in Scripture. But I think we summarized it well in saying that the heart is the center point of you. All too often we center our lives around ourselves, but loving God with all of our heart means we put Him in the center. So He's the, he's the, 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 the center from which all other things emanate, where the, where the ripple of life uh, originates from. Last week we discussed some grammar and I argued that the three elements that follow, soul, mind, and strength, I think they were probably being spoken of by the lawyer as the tools with which we accomplish this. So I think this is what Deuteronomy 6.5 was referring to. And so we started unpacking that last week. We looked at the soul as the first tool. And it's the equivalent of saying your life force, the things that motivate you and drive you. So we're driven by desires for security and comfort and pleasure. And the truth is, those things are only found in God. So while it may be counterintuitive, we have to let go of these pursuits in order to find them. God is what should motivate us. He's what we should yearn after, what our minds should drift to in our free moments. To love God with all of our soul is to eat, drink, and breathe the things of God, to desire them. Well, this week we're going to look at the second tool in our toolbox, the tool that we use to press our heart fully towards God, and that's our strength. So I think we have to start by asking ourselves the same question that we've asked every week. What is strength? What's the Bible talking about when it, when it presents this idea? I'm going to throw the slide booth for a little bit of a hurdle, but I want you to back up one slide to this, my favorite character. I didn't put this in my notes, so I'm sorry, Robert. My fa- one of my favorite TV characters. If any of you have recently been uh, um, either applying for a job or in the process of trying to hire someone, you all know the, the dreaded interview question that gets asked. Tell me a little bit about your strengths and weaknesses. Like, really? So you want me just to tell you all the bad things about myself right here at the beginning before we even get started. And so you get online, you know that question is going to come. It always gets asked. Um, 
And, and, and you get online and you say, well, how do I answer a question like that? And literally every article is about how to spin your weaknesses into strengths. I think Michael Scott framed it well. He said, my weaknesses? Well, I just care too much and I try too hard. That was pretty clever, huh? We are, we are so hesitant to be vulnerable with our weaknesses. Instead, we're drawn to our strengths. Those are the things that we want to talk about. Those are the things that we want to put on display. I believe we think of strength in three different ways. There's the physical, the mental, and the social side. So I want to unpack each one of those just a little bit and talk about them. The first thing that I'm drawn to when I think of strength, I think is like most of you. I have this picture in my mind of physical strength. Now, unlike most of you, the thing that I first think of is the West Texas Fair and Rodeo and the pulling tractor competition. I'm going to guess not many of you think of that, but when I think of strength, that's where my mind goes. I don't know if y'all have ever watched those tractors, but they, they can't even run at an idle because they're tuned for so much strength. So they pull up to the starting line just barely gulping for it. They need so much air to run. I think there's fuel dribbling out the exhaust pipe because they can't burn it all. But then, but then they get on the throttle and they start spooling up and you see the black cloud of smoke that I think looks like smoke signal. They have to be able to see it in Buffalo Gap. And the tractor roars to life and here it goes, pulling the sled down. It's really a silly thing that people do is sit in the stands and watch this. But the display of strength there, and, and people, people are drawn to it in a lot of different areas. They, they watch these cars run in circles around the lap because they're fast and they're strong. Or, or you see the lumberjack competitions on TV where they get the chainsaws and they're, they're mowing, through the, mowing through the trees and seeing who can do it the fast and who, can, who is the strongest, who is the best. We watch the Olympics and we see the weightlifters that can lift the enormous amount of weights in these strongman competitions. We are drawn to, 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 to feats of physical dominance, physical strength. If I was to ask you, who's the biblical character that you think of most when I say the word strength? I can almost guarantee, with 95% certainty, we would agree. It's Samson, right? Man, Samson was one of the judges. I mean, he was the strong man that we read about in the Bible. And in Judges 16, 5 and 6, we see this interaction where Delilah is, is, is trying to, to capture him. And Delilah in verse 6 says to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies, how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Well, Samson tells some fibs at first. First, he tells her, well, if you tie me up with some bowstrings, that'll do it. And so she ties him up with bowstrings. And what does he do? He, he's so strong, he just rips them off. The next round is new ropes. So she binds him with ropes. He rips them off. Then she weaves his hair into a weaving loom and pins his hair in it. And he stands up and he rips the loom to pieces. And finally, he reveals the true uh, source of his strength. It's in God because of his Nazarite vow. And when she cuts off his hair, his strength is lost. But Samson's thrown into, into prison, and in prison his, his hair grows back, and his last act of service to God is to stand up with his eyes gouged out and, and blind and put his hands against the pillars of the temple, and he presses with such strong force that the walls come tumbling down, and it's his last act of service to God. What a, what a, what a measure of physical strength we see in Samson. But we all know that there's different types of strength. There's more than just that. So, so I shift next to this idea of mental fortitude, um, toughness. You know, we tell our kids pretty often that, 
um, when they're complaining, we say, you know what? You can do hard things. Why do we tell our kids that? Because we know sometimes more important than physical strength is, is mental strength. This is why I plan to be able to whoop up on Braxton even when he's 20 years old. Now, maybe my body may not be able to, to hold out, but, but you dads know what I'm talking about. You've got to, you may not have the, the physical dominance that you once had, but there's something in your brain that lives there that you can switch on that, that stays for a lot longer. There's a toughness that those youngsters don't have. You see it in a mother giving birth. I know that that's an exercise of physical challenge in and of itself, but the mental toughness that it takes to go through that process is incredible. As I look to Scripture and I think, who is someone who stands out as a, as a, as a bulwark of, of someone with incredible mental strength? I think of Paul. In 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 29, he lays out and paints this picture of all that he went through. Let's read it together. Paul says, Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. <clears throat> On frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak, and who is made to fall and I am not indignant. Paul paints this picture of all that he went through, but you know what Paul did every day? He woke up and he kept preaching, and he woke up and he kept serving. Paul was tough, and that's a different type of strength than Samson. Now, there's another type of strength that I think we're also familiar with, and that's this social strength. It's this dominance. We would often call this power. You may remember or recall the awkward days of junior high when for the first time you realized all of these power dynamics had to be sorted out. And you might have found yourself on, um, on an unfortunate side of the coin there. Those were difficult days as, as people started to exercise and assert themselves for dominance. And the truth is, it kind of continues throughout our lives just in more polished ways. In Genesis 31:29, we see Laban use the same type of language with Jacob. Laban says this, It is in my power to do you harm, but the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. In other words, Laban is saying, Hey, I'm not going to do anything to you right now, but you need to know I'm top dog. And if I decide to, I can. And, and we see that playing out in, in human culture all over. And so we think of power when we think of the President of the United States. Regardless of what you think about him, his words hold power. And there's certain things that he can speak and things happen. I look at biblically at the reign of Solomon at his peak. The power that was displayed in the riches and the military might among Solomon and the nation of Israel. And honestly, if we look through Scripture, we see that most often when Scripture talks about strength or might or power, it's referring to, to God and it's this type of, of, of all-encompassing power that, that God has. In fact, it's often spoken of of Jesus as well. 
It's counterintuitive. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 paints this picture. He said, Have your mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's the type of power that I'm talking about here. So you can see that there's several different types of power, physical, mental, social power. Um, So I I feel like I need to answer this question for you. What, What is strength? Well, I think you can take all of those things and you can distill them into one little statement. Here is how I want you to think about your strength. It is the power you have at your disposal to alter the world around you. The power you have at your disposal to alter the world around you. It takes a lot of different forms, but all of those types of strength can be used in this way. And so to start wrapping our mind around it, the first question we have to ask is, where does it come from? In the New Testament, apart from Luke and Mark, which are the passages we're studying and its counterpart in the other gospel, there are seven other New Testament passages that use the same word for strength. The first one in a, that I have on the screen, 2 Peter 2.11, talks about angels and the strength that they have. But the other five all speak about the might or strength of God. Revelations 5.12 and 7.12, God is proclaimed to be mighty. In Ephesians 1, God's might is displayed in the raising Jesus from the dead. In Ephesians 6, we're called to draw our strength from God's might. In 2 Thessalonians 1.9, we read that, that hell is going to be where God's strength or power is not present. But then in 1 Peter 4.11, I think we have the only other New Testament passage that talks about a human's strength. And it says that, that the service and the, the servant, the, sorry, it says that the strength that we have that's put to use in service comes from God. 1 Peter 4.11, whoever speaks speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, strength or might really is a fundamental attribute of God. But he's placed some of that might among his creation. He's placed it among some of the animals, but namely he's, he's placed some of that power or that might among us, and we're expected to use it in a certain fashion. You know, he gave a lot of power to some of the animals. We look in Job 39.11, and he says, speaking of the wild ox, will you depend on him because his strength is great, and will you leave him to your labor? <laughs> 
And the truth is, the answer is yes. For years, humans have, have leaned into the powerful animals of God's creation to do work for us. In Proverbs 30, 30, we read of a different type of might. The lion, which is mightiest among beasts and does not turn back before any. There's not many of us who would stand up to a lion. So we certainly understand that God has, has put power throughout all of his creation. We aren't the most powerful creatures in that regard. We aren't the fastest. We aren't the strongest. We aren't the largest. In fact, we're physically pretty ill-equipped for work and survival compared to much of God's creation. But we dominate in the immaterial world. We are by far the smartest, most complex creatures on the planet. I did read a science, particular scientist trying to argue that dolphins were smarter, but I feel like by the end of that article, even he had kind of talked himself out of it. Dolphins are pretty smart, but... They're not capable of doing the things that we're capable of doing. And I wonder and I ask myself why, and I think you know the answer. It takes us back to Genesis chapter 1. You see, our power is unique in that it originates from God, it's fashioned after God, and it's sustained by God. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, we read, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, God took his crown jewel of creation, mankind, um, and we'll read in just a second in verse 27, made in his image, and he gave them a specific charge. And the charge was this. He says, you go out and you exercise your strength and your power in a way that he, the word used is dominion. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and every living thing that moves on the earth. In other words, you go out there and you rule. That's the power that I'm giving you. And it's rooted in the verse that precedes it. Verse 27, because God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We're made in God's image. He gave us this special measure of power, this creative power, and with it, he charged his creation to rule and, and exercise dominion. Romans 11.36 sums it up well. It says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Everything that we have comes from him. Everything that we have flows through him. And by design, in fact, what Jesus was trying to get across here in Luke chapter 10 is that all things are meant to also be directed to him. So I would argue that the lawyer and Jesus wasn't talking about physical strength. He wasn't necessarily talking about mental or even social strength. He was taking a step back and saying, hey, you need to love God with that special element that you have been given. That unique element that sets you apart from all of the other created things. That image-bearing part of you that, that, that points others towards God. That power, that strength that you've been given to alter the world. That's what I'm asking you to serve God with. And it's from Him and it's through Him and it's understood to be directed to Him. So let's talk a little bit about that. How do we use it? How do we give it to Him? 
I think we see the story unfold in Genesis. I've read these passages before, but I want to read them again as we're thinking about this because I think you may see some other things there. Because man very quickly began to do just as God asked him to. In Genesis 4.17, we read, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. So here in Genesis chapter 4, notice that we already see the beginnings of civilization emerging People choosing to live together in community. Cities being built. This is an example, the first example I think we have of, 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 of mankind gathering together and exercising dominion in an organized way. And we see it continue to unfold in verses 20, 21, and 22. Adab or Jabal, he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So we see this one branch of the family tree learning to farm and tend animals. In verse 21, his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. So we see the arts. We see music emerging. In verse 22, Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. Now Tubal-Cain's my favorite because he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. So it's because of Tubal-Cain that we get pulling tractors. So I liked that guy. Tubal Cain. So, so we see, we see these, these humans doing exactly what they were made to do. Taking God's creation and doing awesome things with it. That's how we were designed. And still today, I think we follow the same pursuits. We make art and we build buildings and we run machine shops and we fabricate awesome tools and we press the limits of technology and we grow and we build cities. And we're doing exactly what we were called and designed to do. We just direct it at the wrong things. It's not a new problem. In fact, in Genesis chapter 11, we see they had the same problem. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come. Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So you see these humans gathered together, and they developed this incredible technology which they could build structures that went up to the sky, but instead of using it for the glory of God, they said, let's do this for us. Let's make a name for ourselves. They started pursuing the wrong type of things, things that glorified themselves instead of God. They were pressing their strength towards the wrong things. But their failures to aim doesn't undermine the ultimate goal. In fact, the story of Scripture takes us through the whole process. It begins in a garden. We see humans making civilization. We see the breakdown of that civilization. But then at the very end, at the end of Revelation, when everything is restored and everything is made new, you know where we find humans? Back in a city with God. Revelations 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, 
coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You see, someday we're going to, again, live in a city. And I believe that in that city we will still be exercising our strength given by God. But it won't be in a broken way because God is going to be present. And the work that we're going to do is going to be so intimately connected to Him that it's no longer corrupted. You want to experience a little bit of heaven on earth? Stop using your strength for you and use it for God. Because that's the direction that creation is ultimately headed anyway. That's where it's going to end. What is your world-changing power? You know, loving God with all of our strength means redirecting our human ambition, our power to change the world towards Him. So I want to ask you, what specifically do you have that you can change the world with, that you are changing the world with? Jabal farmed. Jubal was a musician, and Tubal Cain was a craftsman. In the New Testament, Paul talks about the church, and he paints this picture that's similar. It's a collection of humans, all with different talents, all, all contributing in different ways, but pulling in a single unified direction towards God and for His glory. Starting in verse 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, if God arranged the members of, in the body, each one of them as He chose... If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head of the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Skipping down to verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. You have a strength. It may not be the same as the person sitting next to you, but I guarantee you have a strength. And it's meant to be used in conjunction with the other believers in this room in a way that brings glory to God. And this is the tangible action of loving God with all of your strength. Now, I think because that passage is in the Bible and it's talking about the church, we often are guilty of thinking that Paul there is talking about preaching and teaching and greeting and setting up tables for fellowship meals. And I don't think that's true at all. What I'm talking about here and what I think Jesus was getting at when he says to love God with all of your strength is this. He was talking about school teachers who are really good at teaching and do it in a way that brings glory to God and builds up the body. He was talking about cabinet makers who make the best cabinets that have ever been built because God gifted them with the ability to create. Farmers who feed the world through the sweat of their brow and care for God's creation in a way that brings glory to Him. 
He's talking about salespeople who sell quality things with honesty and integrity and build relationships with people, and they're really good at it. And through those relationships, they bring glory to God and help people see Him. I'm talking about doctors who can set aside the, the pursuit of prestige and money and offer compassionate care to those who are hurting and in doing so bring glory to God. I'm talking about the home builders who build the finest homes that money can buy and give families a place where they can gather and grow and love so the glory of God would be upheld. I'm talking about bankers who help people make wise financial decisions and in doing so give them better futures and bring glory to God. I'm talking about this group of believers being a place where everything we do is somehow, in some way, connected to our love for God. Church, God has given you strength. How will you use your strength this week to press the world towards God? Every day you wake up and you use your talents in some way. Is it for you or is it for God? When God's your center point, you love Him with all your heart. It causes you to pursue and desire Him. You love Him with all your soul and all of your life. And that in turn causes you to serve Him with every gift that you have, loving Him with all of your strength and might. And as I look at this picture that's emerging, I see God's design is so beautiful because the very thing that brings Him glory gives you eternal life and it makes the world a better place for everyone. It's a, it's a win, win, win. And that shouldn't surprise us because that's how God's design works. At this time, I want to offer an invitation. You know, I think it can be easy with all this talk of us loving God to forget an important fact. God loved you first. God loved you even when you didn't love him. And it's because of God's love that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to forgive us of our sins. And after we experience forgiveness through him, then he partners with us to help make this love that we're talking about possible. I think the lawyer knew this wasn't possible on his own. If you have been studying and believed that Jesus is the son of God, I hope you won't leave today without being baptized. If you need the prayers of this congregation, if you need us to partner with you and work with you, if you need to study, whatever your need might be, the invitation is open. We hope you will respond. Come forward as we stand and sing.